Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Well, I'm going to uh, do my best to preach the message that I sort of highlighted last week, so there'll be some repetition. Uh, Some stuff I've eliminated, uh, some stuff I really uh, couldn't find a way to... uh, not repeat and have this message make sense. But you know, it's funny, we, in our small group, we're listening to Keith Moore messages. I may have mentioned this last week, but man, if there's something this guy does not worry about, it's repeating himself. Uh, Keith Moore is, the, in my opinion, the premier teacher on faith in the body of Christ. Uh, he just is a teacher's teacher, and that means he gets stuff nailed down. He will repeat himself in a series. Sometimes the first 15, 20 minutes seems like this is exactly what he preached last week, but he's getting that stuff nailed down, so I'm trying to be less self-conscious about repeating myself. Uh, anyway, uh, I am going to be springboarding also off some things I said uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. A lot of this is still referring to the fast. And I think we'll kind of start with, with this again which is once we, we finish a fast, and I was comparing it to um, the difference between dieting and in, uh, instituting some changes in my lifestyle. You know, I found that as I get older, I really just need to make some changes, changes, rather than go through three weeks or three months of a diet, because then the end game is always, once I hit a particular goal, I'm going to join Weight Watchers until I lose 25 pounds. I'm going on a particular workout regimen so that I get my beach body for the summer, whatever, and then once we hit that goal, then what? Then I can go back to my old habits. I can stop exercising so much, I could eat whatever I want, eat whenever I want, and that really shouldn't be the goal, especially when we are looking at this, uh, when we're looking at the fast, we make some changes for spiritual reasons, and those changes that God speaks to us about, the benefits, the spiritual benefits we see, are things that we should absolutely make lifestyle changes regarding. Doesn't always mean we have to keep fasting, obviously, but it's not like, well, I'm going to fast for these three weeks so that I can pray more, and now that the fast is over, I can go back to praying less. Or spending less time in God's Word. That shouldn't be the goal. The, the, the idea, again, is to cultivate an appetite for the things that are important for our spiritual lives. Okay? And uh, I told you a few weeks ago a story about a guy I worked with down at Canaan Land. You remember this? He took a vacation, the killer vacation, where he took a vacation not just from work but from everything, including time in the Word, time uh, in worship and time in prayer, and uh, it just kind of wiped him out. And then at another point, he found himself eating a lot because he was, uh, this wasn't on vacation, this was on the job, but he found himself so busy that he wasn't, since he didn't have to prepare for classes, he wasn't praying, he wasn't studying, and he was hungry. He was spiritually hungry, but he found himself trying to satisfy that appetite with physical food. I'm going to tell you a story about me today. I'm not going to start with it, but it's one I've told in some form before. I just don't remember when and how detailed I got. Uh, but before we get there, let's look at this scripture again. 
this we looked at briefly last week in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 2, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Keep that verse in mind, okay? And especially that warning again lest we drift away. And this is what we talked about in that abbreviated message last week, was how people, most people that I know, in fact, I can't think of an exception to this rule, people who once walked with God and no longer walk with God. I don't know anybody who just woke up one day and decided they didn't believe and just turned their back on Christ. It starts as a drift, a shift, a slide, a backslide, right? Uh, And it never has been... Despite some of their protests, I don't think if anybody is being honest, and sometimes this is easier to see from the outside, it was never, even if it was a drift, it wasn't a drift that was caused by uh, intellectual exercise. Well, the more I studied and the more I considered these arguments, the less I believed. They might say that once it's done. Well, now, here, here are my arguments against it. That is never really the motivation for turning their back on Christianity. And there are quotes by honest atheists, if you want to look for them, who say, you know, I set out on this. I was looking for reasons not to believe because I knew if I believed, I had to live a certain way. I didn't want to live that way, so I started looking for reasons not to believe so I didn't have to live that way. It's not everybody. I don't want to paint with too too broad a brush. And we'll come back to some of that, not all of it, in a little bit. Uh, But I've had occasion over the years... Uh, especially recently, to consider this truth and share this truth, that there comes a moment, or at least a season, I believe, that every believer has to go through to make their faith their own. And what I mean, or at least part of what I mean, is this. I've told you that I came to Christ at a fairly young age, about age 12, and I know people who have made commitments to Christ much younger than that. And the experience that people have when they are raised in a Christian environment is different. It's not always wildly different, but it is different from people who come to Christ, different from the experience of people who come to Christ later in life. And I'm just, this is an arbitrary you know, it's kind of like, you know, people used to wrestle with, what's the age of accountability? You know, it's, we, we, people wrestle with, well, a child died before he was old enough to make a decision for Christ. And we say, well, he hadn't reached the age of accountability. God's not going to hold against him. Well, what is that age? Is it 6? Is it 10? Is it 12? I don't think you can say it's this age. All right? It's, it's different for different individuals. I certainly know that at age 12, I was capable of sinning consciously and offending God, and therefore I was capable of acknowledging my sin and repenting and turning to Christ. Uh, But what is the age where, I guess, instead of the age of accountability, when I talk about somebody coming to Christ later in life, I would say when they've reached the age of critical thought. 
because at age 12, even though I was old enough and wise enough and aware enough to make a decision that I believe was the moment that I became born again, I wasn't old enough or experienced enough to truly count the cost. It wasn't like I had a lifestyle that I was entrenched in at age 12 that I was going to have to turn my back on and make major changes. I didn't have a developed worldview that I was going to have to submit to the Word of God uh, for any way God wanted to correct. You know what I'm saying? But somebody who is out of high school, maybe even out of college, or maybe even later in life, the longer you are uh, entrenched in a particular way of thinking and a way of living, and of course, you know, the, the I've always joked, it seemed like in the, in the early days of my experience with Christianity, even going to these full gospel meetings, whenever you would have a guest speaker who had a testimony, that testimony was always something exciting that involved uh, crime or prison or violence or something like that because they, you wanted to get the absolute worst possible sinner to show you what a difference God can make in their lives. But sometimes it's harder for somebody who hasn't been down that path to acknowledge their need for Christ yet their need for Christ is just as real. I haven't lived that bad a life. I haven't really, you know, I've, I've never consciously cursed God or, or, or done anything bad to anybody. Well, do you still recognize that you're not good enough for heaven on your own? You still need the blood of Jesus. It might not make for as exciting a testimony, but what it means is I can't pursue my own goals. I have to submit my life to God and I can only do that through the blood of, of the cross. And it's a, it's a pretty big decision. It's a much bigger decision for a 20-year-old than it is for a 10-year-old. And so maybe for the person who comes to Christ later in life, that is your moment. Your, your faith is your own. And it's a, but I think for somebody who, comes to, who uh, is raised in a Christian environment, makes that decision at a younger age, I believe in most cases, there is a moment or an episode or a season where your faith becomes yours. And, it's, and this lines up with what Jesus, uh, it's sort of roughly analogous to when Jesus would gather his disciples and tell them to count the cost. Look, I've chosen you. We've come this far. Are you still with me? And that's the story I'm going to tell you today. Again, not yet. <laughs> Because my conversion kind of took place in a cocoon. I was surrounded by a family uh, and a tight-knit group of family friends who were all on the same journey. And I believe that's good. That's how it should be. It's ideal. Um, I preached a sermon. I preach it every, uh, I try to preach some version of it at least every couple of years. Uh, and I, I don't know how recently I preached this, so I'm not, and I don't have time to preach it this morning, so just the highlights talking about Jacob, uh, Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson. When he left, uh, I hope you remember his story. You can read it in Genesis, and it's worth reading, and it's only a few chapters. Uh, you could do it this afternoon. But, uh, you know, he ripped off his brother, uh, stole his birthright, and then stole his blood. talked him out of his birthright, and then his blessing. Uh, by pretending to be Esau because Isaac's vision was failing. And then he had to flee because he knew Esau was, was going to kill him. So he leaves to work for his uncle. And uh, 
he has this dream, this famous dream where, where we talk about Jacob's ladder. He fell asleep and in this vision he saw angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And God speaks to him. And when he does, he reiterates his covenant with Abraham. And here is what happens in Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. Genesis 28, 18. Then Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow. Listen to this. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, And keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. I'm not going to go into this. There's things we could challenge about conditional worship and how he was approaching God. But remember, this was hundreds of years before the law. All right, the law of Moses. And that's where God really introduced himself to the children of Israel. My point is that Jacob grew up in a covenant household. He knew who Jehovah was. He just identifies him and does for the next 20 years after this incident as the God of his father and the God of his grandfather. You'll see him say it in conversation over the next few chapters. But he's saying here, If you will do this for me, you will be the God of Jacob. You'll be my God too. And then 20 years later, again, and it's only a few chapters later that are well worth reading. uh, And during this time, again, we see him talking to Laban. We see him talking to his wives. The God of my father, uh, my grandfather Isaac. The God of my uh, my father Isaac and and of my grandfather Abraham. uh, Always the God or the God of my fathers. Uh, He's said that more than once. He's on his way home. And one of the things he's dreading, the thing he's dreading is the inevitable confrontation with his brother Esau. What's it going to be? Is it going to be peace? Is it going to be war? We can't avoid this. He even splits his, his party up so that if it's war, at least half of them might escape. And uh, the night before he meets Esau, there's this incredible, almost incredible story where in the night he wrestles with God. It's an angelic, rep- a physical angelic representation of the Lord, and he wrestles with this man all night. And uh, the man says, let me go. It's daybreak. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And you know what he does at that time? He asks him, what's your name? What's your name? It's Jacob. What does Jacob mean? It means deceiver, right? He's, and he's, he's, he's reminding him of the moment he deceived his father Isaac because Isaac said, who are you? He said, I'm Esau, your son. Now he's asking, what's your name? I'm Jacob. He says, your name's no longer Jacob. It's Israel, meaning what? Prince of God. Changes his name. And then he meets Esau. And it's beautiful. It's a warm, peaceful reunion. There is peace And Jacob is finally home. And we read this in Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Genesis 33, 18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent 
from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel, the God of Israel, Jacob's God. He's keeping his promise. If you will do this and what? Bring me back to my father's home in peace. Jehovah, the God, will be my God. And it's, he comes home, it's peace, and he says, it's no longer God of Abraham and Isaac, it's the God of Jacob. His faith became his own. And then God is known today as the God of Israel. It's beautiful. This is what I'm talking about. It's a, sometimes it's a different story for those who grow up outside the faith. Now I'll tell you my story. I'll try to not drag it out, but I want to give you a few details. Uh, I joined, along with a couple buddies, uh, the National Guard back in 1983, right, Jeff? Uh, enlisted. I've told you that story before. It was Canfield and me and one other guy, and we were looking for something to do for the summer. We did just uh, the bare minimum of research and decided uh, the Guard would be a good deal. They'll pay for college, um, get us in shape, whatever. And the, the selling point the, the, where they really got us was, you, the good news is you get to go through this together. The three of you will join uh, from this unit, and you'll be part of what's known as the Illinois Buddy Platoon. You will all go through basic training together. And that was like, I knew, man, I, I had no idea what it was like. You know, I'd seen movies and stuff, but man, if I go there with my two best friends, this is going to be easy. And then we all get our orders uh, a month later for three different states and three different dates, you know, uh, completely different places and times, but oh well. Uh, and one of those guys, uh, the other friend in our group, couldn't, he had already been promised by the recruiter, you know, not saying recruiters are liars, but uh, saying they'll, they'll say things to, to meet their quota, okay? And this recruiter had promised us that it wouldn't be before a certain time and, or after a certain time. And this guy had plans. He had made expensive plans with his family for a trip, and he said, I can't make it. So instead, he wound up going to ROTC basic camp. And when he came back, he told us about ROTC. Uh, and I say all that to say that they're typically, most of you know this, but not everybody. And it's not super important, so I'll keep it fast. But just to clarify, uh, people say, well, uh, how, long do you have to how long do you have to be an enlisted man before you, uh, before you become an officer? That's really not how it works. There's two tracks. There's the enlisted track and the officer track. Uh, but there are different ways of getting on the officer track. You can enlist and then go to officer candidate school. Uh, you can be a I think uh, PFC, certainly you can be a spec four and up. A lot of people who transfer over out of the enlisted ranks are uh, E5 sergeants, sometimes even, even E6s, E7s. Uh, and, or you can uh, go through ROTC, which is usually offered at, uh, at, offered at hundreds, if not thousands of colleges. Or you can uh, go to the military academy, United States Military Academy, West Point. This is, I'm speaking Army here. And there's direct commissions, battlefield commissions, and those are exceptions, not the rule, really. Uh, but if you want to get on the officer track. So all that to say, I enlisted, went through basic training as an enlisted man, uh, became an ROTC cadet, got my commission in 85. Uh, I became a, a second lieutenant. But I didn't go to my officer basic course for my 
branch training until 1987. Uh, and it was while I was there that this happened. Now, uh, for it, this doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but I also wanted to say, when I say, well, when I was in the Army, and some people say, wait, were you in the Army or were you in the National Guard? I was in the Army National Guard. But when I say, if I'm telling a guard story, I usually say back in the guard, if it happened like with my guard unit. This was at IOBC when I was carrying the active duty card, and I was going through that with uh, about 80% of my class was West Point graduates. Uh, so when I say Army, I'm usually talking about my, my time at IOBC. And this was there. And the school, uh, between four and five months long, and it was known as uh, a gentleman's course, meaning there wasn't very, it was very rare that we would get dropped for push-ups because everybody in this class is an officer. We're all second lieutenants. Uh, the platoon leader, instead of being a lieutenant, was a, was a captain. Everybody was basically bumped up one rank for the command structure. And uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't treat us like buck privates, all right? And at the same time, we were students. Um, it, it was academically challenging from time to time. It was physically challenging, uh, but typically only when we were in the field. You know, there was PT almost every day, but we were all in decent shape. Uh, but if we were on a field exercise, and sometimes those were five days long, sometimes they were the better part of three weeks long, and, and field life is, is no picnic. Uh, but it wasn't like ranger school. We talked about ranger school a few weeks ago. It wasn't that hard. Uh, but while, when we worked in the field, it was kind of an 8-to-5 job, or a 5-to-5 job. You'd have early morning PT, but then you'd go back. We didn't live in barracks. We lived in uh, more, really more like dorms, and you could live off campus if you wanted to. Uh, and there might be some special training on Saturday, but if there wasn't, weekends were off, and if you weren't in the field. Uh, so Sunday might be my one completely free day, and, I, and here's all that to say. The whole time I was there, I rarely went to church. No excuse. I visited the base chapel or one of the base chapels once or twice. And I think I went to a church off base once. And I don't know why. I just got out of the habit. I did not... And I told myself, ah, you know, it's, it's a hassle trying to find a church. I'm not going to be here long enough to get really involved. I can just read the Bible on my own. Except, do you think I did that? Rarely. I could identify other believers and fellowship with them among my peers, except that I found a few of them and had little else in common. And here's the thing. I never for one second felt like I was turning my back on God. I never felt consciously like, eh, I really don't want anything to do with this Christianity stuff. Just busy with other stuff. I didn't realize that I was drifting. I'm 23 years old at this time. Even in high school, when I had tons of zeal and little knowledge, I would be challenged from time to time by people who were better educated uh, in their atheism. They knew more about the Bible than I did uh, because they were, they were studying it to attack it. Uh, and and uh, it was never, I, I never felt like there was, uh, they were coming at me as an enemy just trying to be a, 
intellectual superior. And sometimes I couldn't answer their questions. A lot of times I couldn't. But I can't remember my faith ever being shaken. I just Because my world uh, was largely populated by fellow believers. Had all of that support. And my social life revolved around church, campus life, things like that. Surrounded by people who shared my belief. Uh, and this, this was a little different. It was a lot different. These were good guys, some of the best men I'll ever know. And I enjoyed their company, would spend time with them on the weekends, not just during training. And I can remember, we're out on a long field exercise. This was what, what, what we would do typically is like, okay, this, uh, we're going to spend two weeks in the classroom studying patrolling or the offense, or something like that. And then we're going to go out in the field and do it. Well, this was the defense. And it was the longest field exercises, field exercise because there was a lot of digging. You couldn't just go out there and do defense for a couple days. You had to establish defensive positions and perimeters. And that meant digging fighting positions, or foxholes, as civilians call them. Uh, and I was out in a place out in front of our defensive line called an LPOP. Anybody know what an LPOP is? Listening post, observation post where you're out uh, a decent distance, well hidden with a field phone so that you can be looking for enemy patrols and you can alert the main defensive line to get ready, here they come. And then if you do it right and you see them far enough, you get out of your, fighting, out of your little LPOP and you run back to the defense and that's the other reason you call them and say, I'm coming back, don't shoot me. And it was me and another guy taking turns, being awake, watching for the enemy. And it got cold. And so they came by, some truck came by, and they were dropping off sleeping bags. And I said, I don't want one. I don't want to carry it. I'll just grit my teeth through the night. And I told the guy that was sharing this position with me, why don't we just alternate? When you're sleeping, you can be in the sleeping bag. But when you're on watch, you, you stay cold. Be easier to stay awake. He's like, no, no, man, I want a sleeping bag when I'm when I'm a stand and watch too. So he curls up in his sleeping bag when he's on watch and guess what happened? He fell asleep. And I wake up with a rifle in my face. With blanks, okay, this was, these were, this was training. But that's how I feel somebody kicking me, I look up and, and they've got us. And so they made, they cut our field phone so I couldn't, and I'm just waiting while they snuck up on the defense behind me and I'm just kind of sitting there feeling like an idiot because we let this happen. And while it's going on, I'm, I start ruminating. I start thinking, man, what if this happened in real life? I mean, this is what we're training for. What if we find ourselves in a position? And it just started, the, the weight of it started to rest on me. I'm going to be making decisions. I'm, I'm going to be an officer. I'm going to have men under my uh, command at least a platoon's worth? Am I ready to shoulder that kind of responsibility? What if I make a mistake that costs men their lives, men their lives, or worse, in my opinion, what if somebody may, uh, above me makes a mistake that costs me my life? Am I okay with that? And this, this is a, a series of questions and thoughts that went through my mind, it seems like in 30 seconds, maybe a minute. And I'm answering, of course I'm ready for that. Uh, this is the responsibility. Hundreds of thousands, millions of young men have died uh, in, in, in these great causes over the years. It's part of the cost of a free society. And I'm going to heaven. What's the worst that can happen? And then out of the blue, 
thought hit me, and it hit me as the most real question. It wouldn't have bothered me if somebody else had asked me this question five years before. But when this question jumped into my mind, it shook me. And the question was simply this, how do you know there's a heaven? How do you know there's a God? And I didn't. I couldn't answer that at that moment for myself. I'm thinking, and again, all this was coming in a rush. I didn't have all night to think about this. I've always believed and I've always been surrounded by other believers. I've inherited my faith from my family. I've been encouraged in my faith from other believers and friends. I've never, I've never bothered to find out if this is really true. I've just been operating on the assumption that it is. What, and what if it's not? Am I ready to die in my 20s? If there is no heaven, because if this life is all there is, I'm going to get into a safer line of work. It shook me. I had certain beliefs, and there were certain things that I did not do because I was a Christian, and certain things I did because I was a Christian, but I did not own my faith. I had never even considered taking the challenges to my faith seriously. It was the faith of my parents, the faith of my peers, and I was separated from my family, I was separated from my church, and I suddenly found my faith at sea. I got back home about a month later and uh, had plenty of money because... Uh, School paid well, army paid well, for officers anyway. <laughs> and since I did, since I had some money, I didn't need to go back to work right away. Back to work right away, and I s decided I was just going to spend as much time as I could reading. And I did. I studied. I read. I asked questions, and I prayed. This was eighty-seven, eighty-seven, and eighty-eight. And remember, there was no internet. Uh, and there was nowhere near the, the number of books today. I mean, now you've got whole sections of, of books in bookstores, if anybody still goes to bookstores, on Christian apologetics. You can look up Christian apologetics books online and order hundreds if you want. And not only that, you can, any question you can imagine, just go right in, type it in on YouTube, and you'll get somebody answering that question. Meaning, there's really no excuse. <laughs> if you have questions, if you have doubts, the resources to answer your questions and ease your doubts are there. And let me, in the middle of this story, let me chase a rabbit. A lot of times when people ask questions, throw up a challenge, and I had uh, Pastor Mike and Cheryl can, could, could, uh, will, will attest to this. We had somebody in the building who was uh, sharing some things that were, that were going, this wasn't a member of our church, by the way, uh, sharing some, some difficult things that he's been going through with his family. And, uh, you know, of course, Pastor Mike's right there, so he's preaching to him, man, do you know Jesus? And I'm, I'm encouraging this guy, have you ever considered? I know we talk, and we've seen this guy a few times, we've talked about this before, and he's like, yeah, just don't know. He says, I'm glad, I'm glad that that works for you guys. It's just that 
I'm just not ready to, you know, after all, I mean, the Bible's been written five, been rewritten five times that we know of, and blah, 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 blah. So hang on, hang on, back up. Bible's been rewritten? Yeah, it's been rewritten five times that we know of. I said, what are they? Who rewrote it and when? Well, I, I don't know all of them uh, offhand. I, okay, well, tell me one. Well, I don't know. Okay. In other words, you're parroting something you heard some atheist say on YouTube one time. Well, no, no. I said, I'm, I said seriously, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and so all that, to, uh, all that to say, here, here was somebody desperate for help, desperate for encourage, encouragement, couldn't be bothered to see if his objections to the Bible were even true. Because he doesn't really, even though he wants help, he wants encouragement, he doesn't want to believe Christianity. Now, even within Christianity, there are examples like this where, uh, and this, this is a very specific example, and I'll give it to you because I think it helps illustrate. A very well-known pastor of a Baptist stripe uh, wrote a book several years ago on the Holy Spirit. And this was a good teacher. He had public ministry. I enjoyed his sermons, but because of his background, he was very much uh, a cessationist. The, the gifts are not for today. The Holy Spirit is real, but he's, he operates differently in our lives than he did 2,000 years ago in the early church. And uh, I figured that he probably had some good stuff in this book, but I was at Walmart and I didn't want to buy the book, so I'm just thumbing through it, looking for what, see if he had anything to say about the spiritual gifts. And he did. Uh, and, but, but what really grabbed my attention was an appendix. At the end, it was, here are some thoughts. After I, here, I've laid out my vision for what, what, I, what I believe the Holy Spirit does and how he operates in our lives. Here are questions I have for those who believe the gifts are for today. Or questions I have in general for people who see it differently. And I think the very first one was, if the gift of healing is still for today, then why don't those who have the gift of healing go into the hospitals and empty them out? Now, I bring that up almost every time I preach on healing. I bring this up. But this was a well-known, well-educated, famous preacher and author who was asking this question by, in a book that would likely be read by hundreds of thousands of people. Not that it's not a good question. And by the way, you know the answer to that question. Most of you do. And the short answer is, Jesus didn't do that either. Who did Jesus heal? He healed everyone who came to him. Specifically, everyone who came to him in faith. He didn't go into the leper colonies. He didn't go into, uh, find, he didn't seek out people who needed to be healed. He healed the people who came to him. Same with us. We're to lay hands on the sick, uh, lay hands on the sick, those who come to us, uh, you know, call on the elders of the church. I'm not going to go down that whole road. My whole point is, Jesus operated in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the gifts without measure, and he didn't go heal everybody in the land. That's why we don't either. Here's what bugged me about that. Because of who he is or was, there, I know there were people in his sphere of influence who could have answered that question for him. Likely, he had had that question answered before. Not that he necessarily agreed with it, 
My whole point is him putting that question in print to stir up the doubt of his readers was disingenuous. He was asking it, assuming and banking on the fact that the people reading it would simply read it and say, yeah. Even though he himself could have suggested a possible answer to that question. And I think that's where a lot of people wind up in the whole question about Christianity in general. So when people say, well, there's challenges. Christianity has done this. Christianity has done that. Uh, the Bible says this. The Bible, oh, and, it, and some things the Bible actually does say. Well, the Bible uh, talks about owning slaves, and we know slavery is wrong. Okay, just get on the internet and type in, what does the Bible say about slavery? Here's my question. Are you looking for a reason to believe the Bible, or are you looking for a reason to not believe the Bible? In my case, I was digging for answers. I knew what I had always believed. I wanted to continue to believe it. And you know what? It didn't take long. My faith was short up. I recommitted my life to Christ, and the God of Larry Millis became the God of Scott Millis. I was saved. I'm still convinced I was actually saved at age 12. This was when my faith became my own. He who began a good work in me at age 12 was being faithful to complete it. And really, you need to understand that as, as far as this sermon goes, uh, the, the one big point is that this crisis of faith, on the other side of that crisis of faith, I can clearly see this was not just an intellectual awakening. I didn't come to that crisis by carefully considering counterclaims to Christianity with an open mind. I came to that crisis by neglecting the things like study and fellowship and prayer that the Bible tells us Going back to this verse in Hebrews, let's attend to these things. Let's don't neglect these things lest we drift away. Here's another piece of that puzzle. I had spent, or, you know, in the, that was right in the middle of this, this my, my sojourn there at, at uh, IOBC uh, was in the middle of, really toward the end of uh, a, uh, about four years where I was living with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Uh, but I think it's important also to recognize that while that's no way to live, I did have one foot in the church. You see what I'm saying? And people, uh, I, I have referred to those years as my vagabond years, and I borrowed that term from somebody else over in Farmer City where I never really turned my back on Jesus, but I wasn't really living for him either. Uh, but right in the middle of, of not pursuing him wholeheartedly, and participating in some things that, that looking back on, I, I know I really shouldn't have. It was sin for me anyway. But I never stopped going to church. I never stopped fellowshipping with believers. And that sort of, that's what kept me from drifting away completely until I spent those months at Benning, away from family, friends, and my, uh, the people who were influencing me correctly. And you could. you got to be careful with that too. Because I, I think, number one, the, uh, the longer you stay away, from the things you once knew to be true, the greater danger you're in. Uh, but somebody might answer and say, well, see, that's the whole point. You were blinded by those when you were in church. You, get, you had your eyes opened when you stepped away. Well, that's, I know that's not what happened to me. <laughs> um, 
And I come back to this answer. If you're looking for reasons not to believe, you can find them. I happen to believe that the answers are overwhelmingly in favor of belief. And I've looked at the answers on both sides. But let's be honest. We often make up our minds ahead of time what we want to believe, and therefore what we want to hear are the answers and the evidence that back up, that affirm what we have already decided to believe. Which is why, and I'm, wrap, I'm getting closer to wrapping this up, especially as the years go by, my confidence is more and more in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made the difference in my life, not my doctrine. And you know I'm big on doctrine. I think <laughs> correct doctrine is huge. It's very, very important. But he is the one, the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made all the difference. It's knowing him that's made the difference in my life. I've shared this story a half dozen times over the years. I believe the guy's name was Art Katz. Uh, a very secular Jew, a uh, strong intellectual, and he was on his intellectual journey and trying to free himself from his Jewish roots and hitchhiking across the country uh, before he came to Christ. And he said he, he, uh, he either was hitchhiking and got picked up by a believer or he was driving and, and picked up a hitchhiker who was a believer. But he, no matter who it was, he'd start a conversation with every stranger he met, challenge them intellectually, and this guy happened to be a believer and uh, he says, well, ever since I met Jesus, he's changed my life, blah, blah, blah. I believe this, I believe that. And he says, he says and the difference is he's alive. And, and Katz says, how do you even know there is such a person as Jesus? You keep saying Jesus lives. How do you know? He says, the guy looked at me and said, because he lives in me. Now, here's a guy who I would think you, you need to give him an intellectual, you need to give him, cover all your bases philosophically. This guy just answered him from his heart. He lives in me. And when Katz tells that story or told that story, he says, he'd go, pow! I was blown away. I was stunned. That's what he said. I was stunned. That answer, just that simple answer, changed his outlook. And that needs to be at the heart. Again, not, we don't have time. I would love to, and we'll, we'll try to do it sometime. I'll, I'll try to weave it in uh, to another uh, sermon sometime, because I can't tell this whole story. But, but that principle, you can only take that so far. I mean, you can't just say, well, you believe this because you had this experience. I can't argue with that. Our experience does need to line up with a moral argument, with a doctrinal argument. I'm just saying, when you've got answers, again, you can find reasons not to believe. I've found more to believe, and not only that, I've met Jesus Christ. And my belief in Jesus Christ lines up with these answers. You're never going to convince me that Jesus doesn't exist by throwing historical arguments at me, scientific arguments at me. I have met him, and he's made the difference in my life. I know most of you have too, right? Uh, so quickly, going back to the fast for a second. We talked about how you can fast long enough for those hunger pains to go away. And then when that hunger returns, you have to start eating again. You eat or you die. I think that's where I found myself at that moment in that lonely observation post in Fort Benning in the middle of the night. I had been fasting without meaning to. And the hunger had been awakened. And I ate. Thank God I ate. 
And when you start eating again, start feasting on that spiritual food, you gain an appreciation for it. Just like you gain an appreciation for the foods that you abstain from during a physical fast. But we also, if we'll receive it, we, we receive a stronger sense of what's truly important. And we should never take the attitude, well, got that fixed, now I can get back to normal. No, we should have acquired a taste, right? A taste for the things that God led us to during that fast. Making a priority of uh, time in the word, time in prayer. And uh, the focus of last week was, was that. It wasn't just get your priorities straight. It was cultivating an appetite, acquiring a taste. We talked about how you can reset your taste buds, reset your physical appetites in three weeks. And we sing more of you. More of you is what I long for. We sing all I need is Jesus. You ever decide to clean house? You're going through, I got a closet full of clothes. I've done this several times in my life where uh, I guess for some reason my clothes shrink <laughs> because certain things don't fit as well as they used to. Uh, no, I know darn good and well what's happened. But I'm going to fit back into these shirts someday. Meanwhile, I have to buy new clothes. And then those shrink. And so I go back to at least two sizes ago and say, well, I'll get rid of these ones. Wind up, I, I have wound up with too many clothes. And I go through them. So it's like, I can't keep up. So I didn't get down to the ones I've got. And it's like, all right, I can't keep, I'm going to keep some of these. Can't keep all of them. So these two, which one do you want to keep out of these two? Well, I'll keep this one. And, to, and go through that until you pare it down. Well, I'll go through that with, if I've got too many books, uh, which ones can I get rid of? And you look at other things in your life. Uh, if you have to get rid of things, put God in charge. He's like, uh, what about these relationships? Are you going to keep this relationship? Is that a relationship that's good for you? Until you get down to two things. Your last thing or Christ. This was uh, the message of Francis Thompson's famous epic poem, The Hound of Heaven. Uh, Really a good, a good read. But starting off, you know, I fled him down the halls and the gates. I fled him through the arches of the years. Talk about running from God and how he just felt and heard God's steady footsteps. Unhurried, but constantly pursuing him. And here's the line that always just cuts you. It says, for though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore adread, lest having him I must have naught beside. I knew his love who followed, meaning I know the God who was chasing me wasn't chasing me to kill me. He was chasing me because he loved me. I was just afraid if he caught me, I was going to lose everything else. The first answer to that question is, so what? We sing, all I need is God, all I need is Jesus, but we don't really mean it. But the flip side of that is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's not saying it's Jesus and nothing else. He's saying Jesus brings everything else necessary with him. But it's even more than that. When you read about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you see Paul talking a lot about 
edification. What does it mean to edify? To build, to build up. He says that when he prays in an unknown tongue, he is edified. He himself is edified, and that's good. But his concern isn't just building himself up. It's edifying the church. It's building others up. This is what we're called to. Uh, Praise and worship team, you can be coming on up here. Where is your heart? Do you have a desire to build your faith? Do you have a desire to build the faith of others? Or do you have a heart to tear it down? The title of this message was actually an appetite for construction, which is a not-so-clever play on words. It's a play on a title of an album by a band that I never listened to called Appetite for Destruction. But this is what some people do. Even in the name of Christ, people go out and tear other ministries down, tear other people down when we're called to be building one another up. This is what the Holy Spirit is for. Uh, Stand up with me as I wrap this up. And Abby, I didn't forget about you. I'm going to have to work it in. Uh, She's got a testimony she wants to share, but uh, I'm going to save that. I'm not 100% sure where I'm going next week. I've got a couple things I'm, I'm praying about. But I did want to say this. Last week, we had an amazing service. This was an amazing service too, right? Because God's word is good. Uh, but the Holy Spirit moved and manifested himself in, in, a, in a way that, that we don't see every week. And many people came up and received uh, uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a refilling. Uh, uh, just, and and it, was, it was beautiful. People received healings. And I want to hear your testimonies about that. But since then, I have also, I've had a couple people question I've had one specific phone call about, they had got a hey, I received the Holy Spirit. I got some questions about tongues, and I want to answer those. Uh, but I also, uh, I'll probably just include this as part of my email tomorrow. I would like to meet with, maybe we have a, a little uh, Sunday school class in the near future, something where I meet with those of you who, who very recently received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just to explain some things to you. Uh, The other option is, I might just work that into next week's message because we could all use a refresher from time to time, if everybody would be okay with that. Everybody be okay with that? Maybe we'll just do that. Okay, anybody not okay with that? Come on, you say. I don't need that. Okay, all right, nothing. Good. Maybe that's what we'll do next week. Uh, An appetite for construction. A heart to edify. This is where we ought to be if we've been born again, and filled with the Spirit. There, the, and I am a big fan of getting questions answered, but I think once we own our faith, once we come to that point where our faith is ours, uh, the question and answer stuff should eventually reach the point where you're only interested in answering those questions for somebody else. Because God's got things for us to do, and I think there's a time when God says, look, You've known me for 10 years now. I've never failed you. You've learned this much. You're never going to know it all till you're in heaven anyway. And I've got things for you to do beyond you just being a little more sure of your faith. You know me. You can trust me. Now get busy with the Great Commission. Get busy serving your church. Get busy serving one another. Because we've, got, we've still got building to do. This is what Jesus said he was going to do. Build his church. And we need to be a part of that. We are a part of the building and we are a part of the construction crew. Right? Uh, We need to be willing and able. uh, Just just yielded 
to how God wants to use us, but we will never be fully used that way if we are not spending that time in his word, spending that time in prayer, and being filled with his Holy Spirit. So let me wrap this up, a couple of invitations. If you have never made Jesus Christ your Lord, personally, if you've never come to that moment where I was raised believing this, but I never personally made that commitment to Christ, and I need to. I need to acknowledge that the God of my fathers, the God of my parents, the God of my community, the God of my church is my God. I personally need to confess with my, with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ because I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. That is your salvation. That is your born again. That is your faith. If you want to make that decision, I'm going to invite you up here in just a moment because you need to make that decision publicly so that we can celebrate with you. If you somehow, maybe you weren't here last week, uh, or maybe you just didn't respond last week, if you have made that commitment to Christ, but you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus told those closest to him, his disciples. They already knew what the plan was. They already knew what they were supposed to do, that they were, that, uh, uh, they were called. They already been doing. They'd already been engaged in preaching the kingdom of God. But he said, don't go anywhere. Stay here, right here in Jerusalem, until you receive power. Because you will receive the Holy Spirit, the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be able to be my witnesses. Uh, this is what the power is for. It's not just for tongues. It's not, it, it, you know, the, the gifts of the Spirit come with being filled with the Spirit. Uh, and praying in tongues is a wonderful privilege. Tongues equals Holy Spirit is a very small statement. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're going to do everything God called us to do. Have I known people who never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit who did some things for God? Yeah, I do. Do I think they did everything God called them to? No, because I think if we're going to do everything God calls us to, it has to go way beyond what we're able to do ourselves and has to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you desire to be born again, you desire to be filled with the Spirit, come up here as soon as I'm done praying. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.